There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away, and they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. You can buy a drink. Well, hello. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And I'm here to uh, dig a little bit deeper into Stephen King's novel, It. And um, specifically, I'll be looking at the second 100 pages, which will take us through... Well, I guess we'll go over a little bit over 100 pages because we're going to have to get through chapter four. But uh, since we picked up right in the middle of chapter three, you have to go back and finish that up. If you remember, chapter three of this book, uh, Six Phone Calls, is the chapter in which we see the response of all our major characters uh, to the to the news that they have to go back to Derry and it's returned and, and all that. Uh, we get Mike Hanlon's The Final Point of View uh, in in. The next chapter, well, it's actually an interlude chapter. I think one of my favorite parts of this book are the interlude chapter, interlude chapters. The chapters, uh, I think there's four of them, maybe five, because there's a kind of an epilogue version of this. But they are basically uh, Mike Hanlon exploring the history of dairy. So it allows us to get in the deep past. And that, that gets me thinking um, about the series that is in production I don't know if it's ready to be released yet, um, but it's kind of the streaming service uh, spinoff version of of it. That movie was moderately successful. I actually rewatched part two, and I think my opinion of it, if anything, has gotten worse, um, if not better. I, I do think there's some moments in that movie, but it's pretty bad overall. And we get uh, we got news that this TV series is coming called Welcome to Dairy, and I think it's. It's set in the timeline of those films, so it's the cycle in the films was the 1980s and then the present day, uh, kind of matching the audience of the of the movie, and kind of uh, Stephen King fans, right? Uh, who would have been that age, my age, more or less? Um, and I guess this is going to look at the previous incarnation uh, in the sometime in the 60s, right? Which or close to the you know the first round battle with it in the book all right um but i think this kind of an unfortunate approach to this i understand maybe why they want to do that because they're going to want to have a set of characters that they can kind of develop and cultivate over a season um but i think really a series like that should be more of an anthology series maybe something uh was it an American Horror Story? But of course, there each season was its own standalone thing. But there's, um, there are anthology horror series, right? Like Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, that kind of thing, where you, but you could have it more thematically connected through the story. But it would allow you to explore different times, right, and get into the deeper history. Um, of course, the timeline's kind of mucked up by the by the movies, but I think you could just kind of retcon that, or just ignore it. And actually explore the history as described here. Because we actually get into the 19th century or so. And of course we have other hints of going farther back, right? The destruction of the original settlement of Derry, 
its encounters with the Native Americans, which is something, uh, to be honest, is explored at least a little bit in the movie, um, but it's just hinted at in the book. Um, but anyways, there's a deep history. I think some of the best parts of this of this book go into that deeper history of of dairy and that's that's in the interlude chapters so um so we got that and then we got the first kind of substantial chapter looking at the june of june of 1958 uh, which is the the story of ben hanscom we're basically going to get in the june 58 chapters everyone except stan's chapter they're all going to get a chapter and the reason that's kind of structurally how it works because each chapter except for one is a the adult coming to dairy some of their adventures if you will on their way to dairy and then they flash back they start to remember right remember this book's all about memory it's all about reflection on the on our past on our childhood it's all about the child saving the adult so we get that beginning of the recovery of memory and they all kind of start from different places and but it all comes down to their sort of their encounter with with it right and that's a problem with both movie adaptations of of it is that you know these it's trying to kill them in the book it's clear that it's going after them there are scary moments there are like i think the beverly one it kind of does come off a little bit more of as a let's scare you with some blood in the sink or whatever but still the backdrop of it is it is still trying to kill her um and in all these cases there are like immediate threats to the characters lives um if not in their chapter in a later chapter they experience it that's the case with bill denbro his original chapter isn't as much but when he when in richie's chapter we get richie and bill's you know encounter with the werewolf where they're both like about to be killed so these people are surviving trauma they're not just seeing something scary and you know it's not like you know, stay tuned. I'm going to come and kill you later. Next, next chapter, next episode. It's not like that. But that's how it sometimes feels in the in the movie. I was watching the second part, and of course, that does do the flashbacks. I think that's a good thing that they chose to do it. They should have done the whole movie probably that way, both parts. But uh, you know, always flipping back and forth. Um, but you know, with the flashback scenes and some of the others, it's just like like it. Even in some of the like the 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 battles they show with it it's a it's like he's try, it's trying to scare him um a little bit too much and not trying to go after him the fear is just the 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 sriracha on the on the murder it's you know it's happy with uh um with the murder alone the sriracha's nice though right i want to put sriracha on everything sometimes you don't can't put the sriracha on you need to feed Anyways, enough on that rant. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll probably say much more about this over the next few episodes as I dig deeper into this book. Um, but anyways, uh, I do remember one thing I forgot to talk about when we looked at uh, six phone calls, especially the chapter about Ben Hanscom, is how the scars were coming back, right? That this, you know, again, my reading of this, and if I'm wrong, tell me. I guess this is something the movie interpreted totally differently. The movie interpreted it that it wants them to come back. I don't see that in the text. I, you know, when they do come, it's like, okay, I'll finally kill them this time. But it does not want them back, which is why they don't, they don't have kids. So they can't remember their childhood. It's why they're successful. So they don't have a material reason to ever return, ever return to dairy. 
and even their scars disappear, right? So it's it's all trying to them forget. Like literally, the scars are trying to make them forget their promise, right? The the promise they made by cutting their hands, and of course, uh, Hanlon has the has a scar on his belly where Henry Bowers tried to write an H with you know, or actually tried to write out his whole name, but just got through the H. You know, that scar begins to return to him. So that was just something I forgot to mention. Among many other things. But now let's get to uh, part five of chapter three. Beverly Rogan takes a whooping. Uh, now, Beverly Rogan, this is one of the best of the six call sections. I think the six um, the six phone call sections, in part because of the way it's structured. It, it starts not from Beverly Rogan's point of view. It starts from Tom Rogan's point of view, her husband. <coughs> now, we saw that before. Um, like uh, the Patricia Uris, the chapter about Stan Uris is all from Patricia's standpoint, the whole thing. But he dies, so he's out of the picture. The others are from different people's point of view. But this one takes on different people's points of view throughout the chapter. We actually see the point of view flip, switch right in the middle of it. So anyways, we start out, we get a pretty good window into... Uh, Tom Rogan's head, which is, of course, I haven't really said that about King here, but that's why I like him and why I think many people like him is he's so good at getting us in character's head. Even minor characters. Now, I wouldn't say Tom Rogan is a minor character in the book, but we have no reason to think he's going to be a major character at this point. But all, you know, in, there's like characters in the Dark Tower who are just there for like one chapter, but we feel we know that we have a pretty intimate relationship with them. And that's certainly the case here with Tom Rogan, who um, we get into his head. And his own anxieties and his uh, the cycle of abuse that he's a part of. He's kind of like a, he's got a bit of a Jack Torrance thing going on. Of course, that's something King is interested in is the cycle of abuse. Because Beverly uh, is kind of, well, she's kind of always been a victim of abuse. First her father, then uh, a boyfriend, and then her husband. Uh, all, all three are mentioned uh, throughout the book. Uh, and Tom Rogan himself is the victim of domestic violence from his father. Uh, that's laid out here in this chapter as well. Uh, and he's sitting there watching a, is it a White Sox game or something? And frustrated. And he's he's getting middle-aged and fad. And, we, you know, he probably was never that in, you know impressive a specimen. But what he knew is how to manipulate, like, women who were vulnerable. And he saw that in Beverly Marsh. Uh, he saw her talent and he saw her vulnerability and he saw those two together and then he went after her quite aggressively and that whole history of their relationship is talked about and we, we're getting a lot of like in all these chapters we're getting this flashback constantly between the past and the present which I think is really how we live our lives right we you know whenever we're in the present we're thinking about the past in some way we're flipping back and forth all the time in our own minds so it's not unreasonable that he's doing this here even like like james joyce ulysses that stream of consciousness book constant flipping through a time right it's like it's, you know we're, we're getting characters thinking about different aspects of the past now stephen king's not a james joyce of course um you know but he's more fun to read um anyways we get the history of the relationship and some of the more shocking elements of their relationship uh such as how when she they were on a date or something but this is before they married and they were and she was smoking and he kind of imposed this rule on her that she don't she shouldn't smoke in front of him uh and then she he beats her up and essentially rapes her 
and then at the end says oh you know kind of okay, makes it okay waves it away by saying oh you had an orgasm a couple times or something but essentially it's a beating and a rape being described but that's how he kind of he calls it like a lesson that has to be sometimes repeated on different topics but something that that kind of keeps beverly in her place and so that's the image of beverly we get really for the first time i, I don't think she was really mentioned before i think this is our first mention uh, the first we hear of her sometimes other characters talk about each other a little bit in their minds but i think this is the first we actually meet beverly so we meet her as this uh, beaten woman, a battered wife, uh, someone who's trapped in this abusive relationship, and um, and we get her we get her through the perspective of this this abusive husband of hers. Um, but he's witnessing her get the phone call and packing, right? So she's doing something assertive and independent because you know if the whole chapter was from Beverly's point of view, we would experience i think a change in her perspective the moment the call comes like all the characters change the moment the call comes right in various ways and they're all driven to act to some kind of action and usually that action is to go to dairy to fulfill their promise and of course it was done in stan's case but you know and beverly is no, no exception here so she's a totally different person she's almost instantly a different person um, now, King doesn't let us know that until he flips the narration to her POV. Um, so anyways, Beverly tries to explain a little thing to Tom, but he just is like, oh, it's time for another lesson. And it's all pretty gross. And he's got this big beer belly and he's like walking around his underwears, but he, you know, underwear. But he gets the belt out, ready to beat her, and she fights back, right? So this is a famous scene that I, I think is in both the film adaptations and it, those, those are fine. They do their job showing her fighting a bit, get back against this abusive husband. This is, again, a theme that King comes back to and explores again and again uh, quite well, I might say, like in Rose Matters. We see it. We see it in Dolores Claiborne. We see it in a lot of those 90s works, right? What's the other one? Uh, uh, the Gerald's Game. We, we see women confronting abuse challenging it in, in different ways you know and there's usually some moment in which they get they get awoken to the, the need to fight like their fight their flight fight mechanism like awakens or turns the right way due to certain external due to certain experiences in rose matter it's the it's where he doesn't he like beat her to this to, to she has a miscarriage and in uh Gerald's game, of course, it's the bed experience where she's uh, forced to come to terms with the abuse she suffered from her, her husband and her father. And then you know, Dolores Claiborne is maybe the, the least interesting of these, uh, although I like that book. It's the least interesting kind of turn, and it's just there. It's just this fear of the abuse moving to her daughter. But I mean, all these women have a Beverly Marsh moment here. So basically, at this moment, we can start maybe saying just Beverly Marsh and stop saying Beverly Rogan um, because the marriage is essentially over. Something made clear in the movie with like leaving behind the, the, the ring. But I don't know if that scene's in the book. I don't think it is, but it's it's implied, right? Um, 
and she escapes. We're going to get more of the history of how she escapes to um, Chicago and gets to Derry in, a, in, in other chapters. There's a, there's a friend who helps her, and she gets kind of tied up into the story because Tom Rogan is one of the three uninvited guests, along with um, Bill Denbro's wife and, and Henry Bowers. So that is, the, I guess, what I want to say about the Beverly Rogan Beverly Marsh chapter. I think it's quite good, um, even though it is kind of falling back on some clean cliches of, of domestic violence and the cycle of abuse and the, the battered woman awakening to the violence and, and overcoming it. But it, I think thematically what works so well here is that she is, um, it's something about the news from Derry that transforms her in an instant, which we've seen with other characters as well. Now we get to the final of the six phone calls. Bill Denbro takes time out. This is, I think, my least favorite of these six chapters. Ironically, it's the one that's from Bill, the, 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 the loser's point of view. I mean, I guess we get Beverly's point of view. Um, Eddie's, oh, Eddie's is from his point of view too, uh, mostly, but most of the uh, Richie's too, but I guess Ben's is from the bartender's point of view. Stan's is from Patricia Uris' point of view. So I, I guess that's not the only one that does that. But um, being in Bill Denbro's mind is not that fun in a way because it's it's Stephen King, right? It's just Stephen King. So many of the experiences here, like that cliche of Stephen King's like this, getting the question, how do you come up with your ideas? Uh, he says this like uh, in every book about an author, there's some like that I even I just read reread Lizzie's, Lizzie's story and it's it shows up there too where Lizzie's thinking about how people ask her husband where he gets his ideas it's just something that King can't get over and it's boring it's in dance macabre too I think it's in so many introductions it's like get over it man people are gonna be interested in where you get your ideas and it's it's not that the fans are weird for asking that question. It's I think it's a legitimate question, and he, be, his response to it, as an unanswerable question is is a little disingenuous. It might it might in his mind be true that he's not he can't answer that question, but you know it's it's a fair question that that fans can ask. I think. A little bit more interesting, but still, it's stuff he covered in Dance Macabre, is like his experience in college. It's, it's all a bit, some of it's kind of preposterous, but Bill Denbro goes to college, and he's being bullied by, uh, I guess, another bully. I, I guess it works thematically, is that we have yet another bully, and him standing up to a bully, something that maybe wouldn't have been possible outside of his experiences in, in Derry in the summer of 58. But still, it all comes off. It's actually more King uh, hating on academia, which I'm fine hating on. I, I hate on academia too myself. I have my own disagreements with it. Um, but I think he's over-arguing it. It's, yes, sometimes academics theorize works of literature. And, of course, they try to create classes around certain themes or they explore themes in their works. And they... You know, it's, it's part of that new criticism movement, right? Where the reader brings what they bring to a book and try to understand it. So that opens up all this thematic exploration, right? Um, but when he talks about a, a person 
writing a really dumb play, which is just a political statement about the war, getting an A and his short story getting an F or something. It's, um, I don't buy it. I just don't think it's drawn from life. If, if King, if, if King really experienced that, okay, then I'm wrong. I guess it's possible. A lot of professors are dicks and, and psychotics and, and horrible, but I, that's not my experience dealing with academics. Mostly they're quite thoughtful and they understand literature as many functions. And they understand that popular literature has its place. I mean, I mean, certainly now, I think there's very little stigma against looking at Lovecraft or or uh, or a James Farrell or, uh, or a lot of like the people King likes, like, a, a, like a Block and Donald E. Westlake and... McDonald and these people, they, they're studied seriously by academics. And it's not that everything becomes a gender, race, class, you know, political reading of things. I think there is space to appreciate genre literature from an academic point of view in a way that doesn't like miss the point. So I think it's both like Bill, when Bill Denbro says to his professor, like, oh, sometimes authors just want to make money. I think academics who study literature know that, but I'm from a history point of view, so maybe it is that bad in the MLA circles. Who knows? Someone maybe can tell me. I just think this whole section is King ranting about something that's not really a problem. So that aside, I think the usefulness of this chapter, um, of course, Bill Denbrough's always been there through from the beginning of the book, from the very first chapter, and he's the one who's somehow key to their remembering. Right. About the time of the murders begin beginning, most of these characters seem to seek out Bill Denbro's books and read them, not knowing why they're doing it. And that's part of the first step towards memory. Of course, Bill's books are in some ways derived from his dear experiences in Derry. That's uh, clear in the text. Um, but what's useful here is we get Bill reflecting on on his past with his through a conversation with his wife, while the other characters, those with important people in their lives like with bev she's escaping with stan he's escaping in his own way um eddie just sort of can't really explain to his wife and just bails um others don't have anyone else they really need to talk to or explain things to but you know he seems to understand a little bit more what's going on and that allows us to put a lot of pieces together on on like the reappearance of the wounds and the loss of memory and the returning of memory and all this. So he kind of works out what he can with his wife before leaving England. He's in England filming a movie. And so he has to cross the Atlantic on the, on the Concord. It's a nice little scene we'll get later on. And of course, we also get the return of Bill's stutter uh, here, which is all part of the remembering. So that's his change, right? His wound comes back, of course, just like uh, Ben's wounds come back. And we get his the return of his stutter. Oh, and back to, by the way, Bev started smoking again, right? Presumably the smoking was kind of beaten out of her by her by her husband, fiance and then later husband. But immediately after the call, she starts smoking again. And that's, you know, all the kids smoke. I think maybe Stan doesn't. But mostly they smoke. But Bev's like smoking all the time uh, as, a, as a young child. Maybe partially to cope with having a much worse family situation than... than most of the rest than any of the rest right um 
you know, Eddie's got his own family issues, but his family's fairly comfortable. Um, in contrast, Ben's pretty poor, and he's got a working-class mother who really can't. I'll get to that in a bit, but she really struggles to put food on the table, so she can't be there, but she's loving, right, and caring for him. Um, Bill's parents are indifferent, but again, it's rel- It's also working class, but it's relatively comfortable. You know, they have like a piano in the house, and you know, it's like fairly middle class. Um, who else? Uh, Mike Hanlon's from a fairly prosperous farm family. You know, in a in a pretty and parents that are pretty good. Um, so, like, not all adults are bad here in in dairy. Certainly not. Um, but you know, Bev's got probably one of the worst because she's being actively abused and creeped on by her, her. I mean, her father's trying to like have sex with her, so it's it's bad. The situation's bad. Um, but anyway, she starts smoking right, like as soon as she gets the phone call. And for for Bill, it's a stutter coming back. Um, and of course, she forces him. Or he forces her, his wife, to promise not to follow him to Derry, which, of course, contrasts with the promise that he made. But anything else to say about this chapter? I don't know. I think the it's just the most reflective on what we were seeing happen. So it comes at the end, and it helps the reader put things together. It's helping the reader out. Maybe you don't need it. Uh, if you read the whole book to understand what's happened to these characters, but it does help. I think the reader at this point, because we are going back and forth and flipping out of time and having all these characters introduced to us. It helps to have that reflection um, on what's going on. And he has built to that through, through his conversation with his wife. So now we get to the first uh, interlude chapter, which has its own um, epigraph of Clive Barker. How many human how many human eyes have snatched glimpses of their secret anatomies down to the passage of years? So that's warming us up to the fact that we are going to get a um, exploration of of Derry's hidden history. I'm just going to get the start of it. Now we get a little introduction to this. So it, this is like a book within the book. So it's like some years later, um, we we have a, an editor writing an introduction to Mike Hanlon's notebooks, which it sounds like it get my, it, I don't know if this is the narrator of the book, but it's in italic. So I wonder if this is a, I'll just read it and you, you tell me. Um, the segment below and all other interlude segments are drawn from Dairy and Unauthorized Town History by Mike Hanlon. This is an unpublished set of notes accompanying fragments of manuscript found in the very public library vault. So I guess the, in that sense, yeah, it's our narrator has knowledge of this text. But I can imagine in the future someone could dig this out of the Dairy Public Library vault and publish it. But at this point, it's still unpublished. Um, and he even gets, like he says, the narrator says, Mike Hanlon seems to have wanted to publish this at some point. Maybe that's before he realized it returned. And of course, at the end of the novel, we learn the characters forget everything, so including Mike. So he's not going to be able to complete the work at the end. So all that ha- all we have is his notes. So at some point, bef- you know, as the murders begin, he starts jotting down notes and talking about his research. He actually began the research years before, so he's reflecting on that as well. 
And so we start with a exploration of the word haunted and the different meanings of the word haunted, including feeding place for animals, a place visited, um, visited by ghosts and spirits, per, persistently recurring to the mind. These are all different you know, definitions of the word haunted. And he's like, yeah, in this sense, dairy is haunted. But the question is, what's haunting dairy? What's feeding on dairy? Um, now, he admits here that he's sort of the watchman. He's been left with that role because he doesn't forget. He stays in dairy so he remembers, obviously. Now, the watchman is an important feature in King's fiction. Usually they're older generations, and that's something played with here too, that the older people know stuff that younger people don't. But I'm thinking of, of course, Pet Cemetery, uh, where you have an elder watchman. You have it uh, kind of in Salem's Lot, maybe not as explicitly. I think it's clearest maybe in Pet Cemetery. It's there in the Dark Tower books. You have older watch, watch, tow watchtower kind of people. It's kind of this idea that the old stand watch, right? But Mike Hanlon is not old. He's still relatively young, but um, he remembers enough so that lets him qualify as being the watch person. But even he seeks out the advice of older people. So he's, you know, we, we learn that he's starting to dig into the history of dairy to tell the larger story, not just the experience of of his his own his own experience, but also the experience of of others who came before him and he seeks out the advice of historians and scholars of of dairy now local history is a thing it's a pretty important field i think you can go to most cities in america and find local histories published by serious historians but it's also something that's dug into by a lot of amateur historians right it's something that's um sustained by local historical societies and as I said, amateur historians. And um, there are academic historians at the university level who also are interested in local history beyond just case studies, you know, that actually think local history is valuable. And I think it is too. I think it's really fascinating stuff. Um, but uh, so that's what he begins to seek out. He begins to do in his own local local history of, of this, trying to remember when it starts and lay it all out. Uh, he mentions the characters and some of their experiences, and he foreshadows a lot of of things that we'll learn about later in the book. He also talks about why he's writing this is because the murders have started again, and he mentions specifically uh, and Andrea Mellon being the first, uh, then a child in Niebold Street, which is a you know the geography of Derry is very important here, and these chapters help lay it out because where things happen. It's usually in relationship to the sewers, which, of course, is approximate to its lair. Anyway, overall, this chapter is just wonderful. I love this, 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 this interlude because it is someone writing down, you know, the beginning of a research project, which is fun. Like the, the, the hypothesis questions you may have and where, you know, and you start to investigate, you start to read these books and decide where they go. And so he, he starts to ask old timers, old historians, who to, you know, where to get to start to get the history of, of, of dairy. And anyways, this, this old guy mentions some histories, you know, Buttinger, who actually makes a cameo appearance in, in the newest movie I noticed this time, History of Old Dairy. But he's kind of like, throw that out. But the point he's trying to make here is that these local historians 
the ones who really dug into dairy's history, actually did know something. They actually did understand something about dairy, which is something that a lot of old timers also knew about that cycle, that cycle of violence. Um, and why dairy seems to be special and different than other cities. And but he, he also says, like, you can study this history you can get into it and you can find this out for yourself. But no one's going to care. No one's going to read it because this is a city that forgets its own past. You know, it doesn't mean the occasional person doesn't dig into that past and try to understand it. But as by and large, that history wants to be forgotten. Right. It's, you know, you which I think is true of all American history. I, I think to a certain degree, this is true of most American history. Uh, you, you know, when you have your, your, your festival celebrating your town's history, you don't focus on the strike where 20 workers and their children were killed by the, by strike breakers, or you don't focus on if you're, you know, if you're in a place that had a history of slavery, you don't focus on slavery and, and that you don't focus on brutality or, you know, all the dirt of the of the town you don't that's tends not to be the center of your of your identity of is your town and i think too you know it's it's true of america too right that america doesn't um put on display its brutal history yeah you can find it in books right but you talk to the average joe on the street they don't want to hear that stuff um you know if you look at what a lot of academic history says about america these days that's not what the average person wants to think about their country. And that's what the average person here doesn't want to think about dairy. It doesn't mean they don't know there's something up. Or it doesn't mean they're not aware of the reality. It's just something that, you know, they want to move on from, right? And I think being a cycle helps that out, right? Because you can always just say, it happens twice in your life, right, this cycle. Maybe once. And you can, it's always kind of like, oh... It's something horrible that happened, but it passed and we move on and we live our lives. But Mike here reminds us it's not something that's only cyclical. Yeah, there is a cycle, but the status quo in dairy is not that good either. Right. So, yeah, like in the same way, America has its wars and its violence and its horrible historical events. But the status quo is not any less horrible when you look at it. Um, so the murder rate in dairy is six times the murder rate in other towns. That's not all it's doing, it seems. Like, we're going to see a chapter next time. Another one of my favorite chapters in the book. The one about, um, um, what's it, Ed Cochran, right? That chapter where his brother was murdered by his his stepfather, right? And, and he flees and he's killed by it. So both the family loses both of their children. But one to murder and one to this, to, to it. Um, so not all of this murder rate is due to that. It's just there's something wrong in the town, right? It brings out the worst of people. It creates Eddie Bowers and and um, like Eddie Kasprek's mother, and it creates um, Bev's father. It comes from dairy itself too. Um, so I think this can be a metaphor for America. I don't know if that's um, King's point of view. People like to say the Stand is his uh, novel of America because of its epic scale. But I think this, even though it's it's writ small, is actually better at looking at how we come to terms with our own history. You know, we're not come to terms with our own history. So he gets into some of the stats and saying that there's something fucked up about this town, really, really deep, and people aren't really acknowledging it. And he even asked about like 
why so many people leave the town and he's just like oh people leave it was the depression whatever you know as long as life goes on in the town you don't have to focus on those things as long as the stores keep running people keep going to work for the most part you can ignore this stuff and anyways at the end of the interlude chapter we find him still being anxious about calling and over the course of the interlude chapters we'll get closer to the phone calls themselves so even these chapters are out of place so the whole book is always flipping between timelines and stuff but even the interlude chapters are told in a way that they actually should be all at like chapter two or right? put them all together and make them chapter two in the book if you're going to approach this book in a more chronological way well, i guess then if you're going to do totally chronologically you put all the 58 stuff in first then the interlude chapters than all of the adult stuff, but that's obviously not King's approach. But I think the way he uses the interlude chapters is great. It's a wonderful like change of pace, and it has some really wonderful stories uh, about the kind of context that it can take advantage of, whether it's gang violence or racial antagonism or or uh, labor conflict in the in the logging mills. Like, there's so much about like early in the book where you learn that logging made this town right, right logging made this town the canal was tied to the logging industry it's kind of like a place i grew up in Wausau, wisconsin which was tied to logging and it was more of a paper town but still tied to that on the river and you know i grew up seeing these huge piles of log next to the river by the paper mill factory that's all tied to Harry's rise but in one of these interlude chapters we learn that like that's all tied up with it too, right? The the experience of the of of these loggers and the labor conflict and, and all that. Um, so, anyways, that's done. Now we move into part two. That finishes up part one of the book, which is just the shadow before. It's, remember, there's uh, five parts in the book. Um, so, part two is the June of of nineteen fifty eight. This part has six chapters. Each chapter. Um, let me make sure it's six. Yeah, it's six. Each chapter is from the point of view of a different character. So we start with Ben Hanscom, then we get Bill Denbro, then we actually get Mike Hanlon, although that's a chapter that's told in a little bit different way, um, where we get the story of, we start with the story of just a random missing boy uh, and what happened to him. Then we get uh, Eddie's point of view, then we get Richie's, and then we get Bev's. Stan's point of view we don't get until quite later but all of these characters including San experienced it as individuals right before they confronted it you know as a group so we start with Ben Hanscom takes a fall it's a very long chapter um, but it's just a joy um, I'm not going to go through play by play in this chapter um, but it's it's wonderful how long is it it's um, 60 chap 60 pages um so after the six phone calls which was over 100 pages we get another long chapter and this is all ben hanscom's point of view and uh what else do we got here um oh we got two epigraphs to part two june of 1958 first uh, another quote from william carlos williams patterson which is about roots the roots in the town, um, the roots in oneself, which of course is what we're looking at when we look at our past. 
And then we got Eddie Cochran singing Sometimes I Wonder What I'm Gonna Do. There Ain't No Cure for the Summertime Blues, um, which is, of course, we get the we get from Ben's point of view, the joy of summer beginning, the joy of summer vacation. And it's so well done here. You know, the f- feeling, even for this lonely boy without any friends, bullied, you know, the, the, the exhilaration of being freed from school. But there's a cloud over that exhilaration and that cloud does not come from it directly anyways it, it's from henry bowers so it's our first close look at at henry bowers so anyways like most of the chapters in this section we start with uh, a section in italics which is set in the present whatever 85 and we get ben hanscom on this flight and this is all from the point of view i think of the flight attendant it kind of reminds me of the drawing of the three that scene where the flight attendant is watching um uh, eddie um eddie dean in that case suspiciously but something is weird is going on here it's it's ben is being eyed weirdly like oh this guy's drunk he's gonna be trouble but he turns out to be okay instead ben's just gonna think about his past and just begin to have memories about the first day when school ends like June 1st, you know, early June of, of 1958. And we begin with that exhilaration of school ending. Um, and this chapter goes into a lot into the... Um, just how that feels and what that freedom means. But then all the shadows overhanging it. One shadow is Henry Bowers, who is mad at him because didn't let him cheat on his test another and you know had to is probably gonna have to stay for summer school or be kept back a year and and there's a wonderful moment where ben thinks like really machiavellian about how like if i don't let him cheat maybe he'll be kept back a year and i won't have to deal with him next year i'll be uh to sixth grade and he'll be stay this he'll stay in fifth grade because he's already been held back one year henry bowers is a year older um Made it a little old in the movie. I guess that's... I might as well bring that up now. I, my other big complaint of the new It movie would be how they aged up the kids. Um, I think when you're talking about a theme of belief uh, and magic of belief, you need the younger kids. Um, and they always make... Like both film adaptations, I think, made Henry Bowers look a little older than than he really is. He's a brutal, horrible person, and as is Patrick Hochstetter. Uh, but they're not that old. I mean, it's like, that's a King thing, right? Where, like in App Pupil, books like that, or like evil is capable of implanting itself in very, very young people. Um, but, so one crowd is, is Henry Bowers. The other cloud is the curfew and the murders. So there's already been several murders after Georgie Dembro by this point. Uh, it's, you know, that was, was that like October? It was 1957, right? It was the year earlier, but I think it was like autumn of that year. And then we have the winter and the winter is when Bill, or I'm sorry, Ben first encounters it as the mummy. Um, and now we're all the way to the next summer beginning. So it's been at work for almost a year by this point right feeding so there's been a lot of murders and some of them are mentioned um was the one uh betsy betty ritzcomb ripscomb is one of them uh their names may come to me but their their names are scattered out it's all kind of king sort of unveils that history there's been a long series of murders and this has led to the police 
and the authorities implementing the curfew. And that's part of the cloud. And then we got the cloud of like his family situation. And these come together in a very heartbreaking scene where we know he's from this um, poor family without a father. The mother is like working as like a maid or working in a factory or working two jobs. I think it's a factory. Maybe she's a janitor or a factory and she's maybe got another second job. And she really can't, she doesn't have really the time to be there for Ben and Ben doesn't have friends. It's all really sad. And she's just like, oh, she's so worried. It's, it's really heartbreaking stuff. Uh, again, not all people in Derry are bad. She's one of the good ones. Um, she just can't, like, because the economic realities mean she can't be there for him. She can't watch over for him. So she buys him this watch and, you know, says, you, you got to make sure you're always here at six every day, no matter what you're doing with your friends. And she doesn't even know he doesn't have friends. It's so it's so sad and, and tragic. But that's a cloud that's overhanging and all ties to the curfew. And, and this is the fear of the mother it's being so different from the like he knows about the, mur the murders and things, but doesn't fear it. He fears Henry Bowers, a much more realistic direct threat. His mom fears there's a child murderer and raper out there. Um, and and it's like devastating to her, but she just can't provide the protection that her son needs. Um, at least I find it kind of sad and tragic, but, you know, I was kind of a latchkey kid too, so nothing wrong with that, but um the way it's written here is quite well done i think uh so that's one cloud the other cloud is beverly marsh to a certain degree where there's that unrequited love um there but anyways he leaves school and what does he do he goes uh to the library first he like finds some cans some bottles and he cashes them in for money and then he buys candy immediately with it which of course we get hints of his you know how his relationship with food, which is not healthy. Um, it's, you know, don't call me fact phobic or whatever, but at least in the text where this relate his relationship was not healthy. It's filling in uh, mostly his mother's need to feel she's providing for her son. So she provides it through food, through cooking, through what she can do well. But Ben himself doesn't really reflect on his overeating and his relationship with candy and all that stuff. So he, he's just, except being fat, he just changes his clothes, right? So it's not so noticeable, right? In fact, it's it's kind of, you get the sense he's getting bigger and bigger because he has to change his clothes to wearing the sweatshirts in the, su in the summer, you know, so he can't see his, his tits. Um, another problem with the movie, they make the boy fat. They make Ben fat, but not fat as like in the book. Like in the book, he's like huge. They didn't go that far in the movie. I don't know why. And certainly in the TV series, he's barely fat at all, right? He's just a little, maybe a little stocky. I guess the, the newer movie at least tried to make him a little fat. But he's, like, huge, right? He's called Tits because presumably he has big tits, which most even overweight boys don't have. And I actually looked up the pictures of Haystack Calhoun because that's what Richie calls him later on. And that guy's big. That guy's huge. Anyways. Enough about that. Um, so a bunch of clouds overhanging. Um, ben, and they all come together in this one day. 
Um, first we have, he goes to the library after buying the candy and eating a bunch of it. He goes to the library, checks out a book, and he has a nice little chat with the librarian. You can, it all sounds nice. It really is pleasant. Uh, the description of the library is really well done, and it's something that obviously stays with Ben because apparently he later life would use the library as a model for one of his later buildings because he's a famous architect. Uh, but even here, there's some ominous clues like the, the three Billy Goats Gruff posters, right? The idea that there's something hiding under the bridge, um, which of course is going to remind him of the canal, right? Where he first experiences it. Now, while there, famously, he writes the haiku for Beverly. Your hair is winter fire, January embers. My heart burns there, too. Um, super, super memorable. They make too, Again, they, they make too much of this in the movie, but it is nice. I understand why they want to focus on it, but it's, you know, that he's able to pull that off just with a few tries. And he sends this postcard without his name on it to, to Beverly Marsh. And she, of course, gets it. Um, and then he... Um, leaves now we get a little ch description here when he leaves the library about the city itself and how dairy was sort of unplanned and built up over the years over its foundations and later on we learn that that is uh, the tunnels and the sewers underneath dairy are layer upon layer until you finally get to its layer um, the same way the history you know we experience our history just year by year, day by day. But if we dig farther past, we see the deeper history and, and Ben, uh, or sorry, um, Mike digs deeper in the interlude chapters. So through the, through the novel, we get a deeper and deeper history of, of dairy. And it's, uh, this approach is done really well here. I think this description is great. And of course, King is very, very fascinating with the geography. I got to imagine he sketched out dairy. If that can be in the King's papers someday, hopefully many decades from now, when he's no longer with us, if we go to the King papers in the University of Bangor or wherever, and we find his sketch of dairy, there's gotta, it's got to exist somewhere. If it, maybe it's been destroyed, but uh, you, know, you can find these maps of dairy online now. People have, have reconstructed this, this geography, and it was pretty easy to do, I imagine, because there's so much detail given in the book about that. But there's also like a historical geography that changes over time. And we got that a little bit in this chapter. Um, now, this all connects, of course, to the Barrens, which is this forested area on the Kandusky River. Now, that is an actual stream uh, that goes to Bangor. So now in King's Universe, Bangor and Derry both exist. Um, and they're the same town, though. They both have the Paul Bunyan statue. They both have the canals. They both connect to the Kandusky. They, he probably should have not kept Bangor in his universe if he was going to put Derry into it. Because they are so similar. It's like two exact copies of themselves exist in Maine. I guess you just got to like allow it, I suppose, as readers. It's not a big deal. But it's uh, really, this is Bangor, which I, I have been to um, several times. So anyways, he's going out, he's walking past the Barons, and that's when he gets caught by the bullies. Henry Bowers, Victor Chris, Belch Huggins. Um, these are the three. And there's Patrick Hockstetter is another one. I think there's maybe a handful of other bullies too. 
Uh, those are the main ones. The ones that play a role in July and the climax of the book. So, um, of course, famously, Henry Bowers starts to carve his name into the belly of, of Ben, saying, you're going to remember me next time I want to cheat off you. And he does carve the H, at least most of the H. I think he carves the whole H. And then uh, Ben gets away. It's pretty horrifying stuff, right? It's like over-the-top kind of violence. But that's what Darien brings out on people. It's also over-the-top that... Uh, Darcy Cochran's father beats him to death with a hammer. That's a future chapter. So Ben has to survive this encounter with with uh, the bullies. And he does. Basically by kind of hulking out on them. Using his size to, dom to first escape. And then just like beat on Henry a little bit. It's a great moment where he just starts... Um, kicking him in the balls and shit and and the thing that like makes ben the angriest is like he ruined the books because he had to like fall into the barons the books got destroyed or wet and it's like i'm gonna have to pay for those and we know he doesn't have much money and his parents don't have much money and he doesn't want that library mad at him so all this like really forces them to hulk out and he does beats the shit out of them but then if, and is able to escape and get away from them and he hides in the uh he hides in like one of the one of the sewer drains or something. Meanwhile, the bullies go and find Bill and Eddie who are building their little, their baby dam, as it's called, as they tease them, tease them. So this, he goes to ground and while in ground, he thinks about his experience with it. And so now we get our second kind of temporal shift in the chapter, the first the whole chapter is kind of a shift back in time to memory, but we also get the a shift within the shift, which is Ben thinking about, um, and not that this is hard to do, or at least I, I want to say King is very good at this. He did this in like the gunslingers, just flashback after flashback. Actually, all the dark tower is kind of nested flashbacks. So he's good at it, but it comes so strongly in this book. I really enjoy it. That's one thing I really like about this book. But uh, we get the flashback and it's to like the it's like January of the year. Um, yeah, January of 58. So it's the winter before and he's staying late to help the teacher. He's a bit of a teacher's pet, right? The, the teachers like him and he's helping with the library books or something. And then he leaves. She's like, oh, do you need a ride? He's like, no, I can walk. And so he's walking in the cold and that's a windy, cold day before a storm's coming and he's passing the canal and then he sees um the clown so he sees uh the pennywise avatar of it and the creepiest thing here the old, like this is a 60 page shape 60 page chapter and the creepiest thing about it is the the balloons like floating and kind of against the wind right that's what bill or that's what ben sorry can't understand and get his head around it's almost what draws him to it his curiosity his natural curiosity to understand the world leads him to try to seek out the balloons. He goes there, uh, or he see well as he gets closer to it, and, the, and the, like the clown's talking to him and stuff. But he sees it; it's actually a mummy. So as he gets a closer look, 
underneath the clown suit is the mummy from the movies, right? Because, you know, that's something King really likes is these 50s horror movies and he's pulling these creatures from there. Later on, it'll be the creature from the Black Lagoon. We get the werewolf. You know, these are kids and they're, these movies may seem silly to us now, but to young people at the time, they were frightening things. I remember seeing my some of my first horror movies and being really terrified of them. Like night, like the Night of the Living Dead remake for me. Um, and I saw that when I was like 13 or 14. So maybe maybe a little bit younger, maybe 12 or so. But that really horrified me. Um, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies maybe would be a, uh, another thing that that really shocked me. So these movies were frightening to kids at the time, especially if we're to believe King's narrative in Dance Macabre. Um, and we get the ref the refresher on the three Billy Goats gruff story because there's parallels here to that. We have like the canal, kind of like almost like a bridge over the canal and he sees that. But it tries to kill him. And that's the point I want to make. He's not just scaring him or saying, hi, I'm the monster that's going to terrorize you all summer until you defeat me. It's like, trying to kill him and it almost does right and ben barely gets away um and that kind of brings us to the end of the chapter he does i guess in the last moments of the chapter meet bill and eddie who are building the dam um so yeah that's it so that's uh two and a half chapters more or less really one chapter an interlude and the half of another chapter that i didn't finish last time but um so much to unpack in all of it so anyways, I, since I've only already been going on for about an hour, I'll let you go. Please let me know what you think of these reviews or if you have any comments or criticisms of my interpretations or thoughts about it, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or leave a comment or a review on iTunes. I would appreciate it. Um, so that's it. Going I'll see you next time. To town where the broken stay going down to lonesome town to cry my troubles away in the town